Heavenly Father, we bow before you today and we ask you to touch our hearts with uh, the reading of the word, the sharing of the good news in John 3.16 and 3.17. Open our hearts, God, to what you might say to us. May we hear. And in that hearing, God, may our lives be changed by what you give us today in the good news. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, for generations, maybe the most well-known Bible verse was John 3.16, and, uh, and was, today we begin our continuous series looking at favorites or classic Bible sections of verses, uh, pieces of Scripture. We looked at uh, the Shepherd Psalm, Psalm 23 last week today, John 3.16 and 3.17. Again, maybe the, well, maybe the well, most well-known Bible verse there is, memorized by the most people probably. And I want to show you some pictures that relate to that here. might help you know where I'm going today. Uh, picture number one. We'll be up there any second. There it is. Uh, how many have seen this guy or a guy that looks like him at a, maybe on a television, a football game? Very popular character. He'd been around for a long time. And this is actually a copy of the original guy back in the 70s who used to do this uh, with the rainbow wig and John 3.16. Next picture, please. Now... You all know who this is, uh, many of you do anyway, Tim Tebow. Uh, and for years, he, uh, in, in the black he puts under his eye to kind of blot out the sun, John 3.16. That's what he does. Next verse, next picture. Now tattoo, John, with three crosses, John 3.16. Now if you do that, don't tell your spouse, well, Pastor Mike showed a picture in church, it must be okay. So you take responsibility if you choose to have a tattoo of John 3.16 on you, but uh, someone did with a very large shoulder there. Next picture. Uh, there's someone running as fast as he can being chased by a referee or an umpire. How many have been chased by a referee or umpire in your life? Anybody here besides that one? Good, good. Uh, but that's happening there, and uh, you see he's kind of grimacing and a little worried he's about to get caught as he evidently wants to share the good news in a very unique way. And the last of uh, the picture of the bunch, there's somebody sitting in the stands, John 3.16. Unfortunately, those who need it probably don't know what the verse is, but uh, those, those who do say, oh, good, I like that verse, John 3.16. Now we can take those pictures off if you would. Why, why are people drawn to, to this verse? For God so loved the world. Why? What's in us that says, I want to memorize that one. I want to believe that one. I want to show people that one. I want a tattoo of that one. What is it about that verse? Is it because that we recognize there's no hope without God? Is it because, that we're, because we're aware of our, our deep-seated brokenness and need? Is that why? Is it we're aware of our bent to sin, even on our best day? Is it because we know we're mortal and we'll die and we're helpless and is it because we have a deep yearning to know God in a fuller way? Is that why? Why is this? Why are we drawn to John 3.16? Uh, when I was dating my wife, Ron, in Key West, and she'll remember this story, or these stories, I, I rode a bicycle to work many times uh, there in Key West from the base, which was the base I was at, the southern end of the island, to a base further up called Bo Bo Boca Chica. It was about a 10-mile ride on a bicycle, and I would wear my, I'd take my bicycle at night many times uh, in the dark with a flashlight taped to the handlebars. Uh, don't do this. Uh, and one little reflector on the back, and that was it. Driving down very narrow roads, uh, a lot of it on the highway. Uh, they're going 70 miles an hour past me, and I'm still alive, thank you, God. 
as I think back to that, why in the world would anybody do that? But when you're young, you do things like that. I wouldn't do it today. It's way too dangerous. Now, how many know that life is dangerous? That life is very fragile. How many know it's very precarious in our journey? And, and we have these verses that say, for God so loved the world, so loved you and me. Why are we drawn to John 3.16? Because we, we know we're in trouble. We know that we need salvation. We know that we're on the brink all the time. Is this why? I think so. And we are drawn to the answer because these verses simply tell us a couple things. They talk about life and death. Hey, it's about life and death. It is. It's about life and death. The verses talk about condemnation and salvation. We deserve to be condemned, but God saves us. Don't we like that? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that why we're in church today? Whether you've been coming for many years or the first time, that somehow you get this sense that maybe Jesus can do that for me, this loving Savior who died for me. And it's about God and us. It's God and each one of us coming together in the beautiful way God makes it possible for God so love the world as we read and hear and sing God's Word. A word we read, memorize, uh, and hear. A word made real on a real cross. And I say this often, but we can't separate these words from their reality. And that was Christ died on a real wooden cross. God's blood was on that cross. We recognize that he suffered there a real death followed with a real resurrection. And God's word is the intended act of God, not just in how it's verbalized, but in the act of God in our world as the word made flesh for us in his son, Jesus Christ. A word with a purpose, to save the souls of those who believe it and to save the lives of those who live it. And I got to talk about that for a little bit. Uh, I think many of us recognize the idea of salvation being a gift of God. The Bible talks about that a lot. We can't save our own souls, and we can't find our own way to heaven. God has to do that for us. And we, and we pray God will by our faith place in his faithfulness in that way. So salvation is a gift of God by asking. We ask that Jesus save me, forgive me, I believe in you, and he does. But, to, but for our lives to be saved, we have to live the example of Jesus Christ we have to live out what he teaches. People often only have half a gospel. They know the part where we get saved by believing in Jesus, but they miss the part where we have to live the life he teaches us to live. Or they try to live the life he teaches us to live without having salvation and the power to be able to do that. We're talking about a complete gospel in these words of John 3.16 and 3.17. Not only do I accept and believe and I'm saved by his work, I must also live by what he teaches me. The Beatitudes, love God, love neighbor, all the words that he offers you and me. He says, the house that's built on the rock is the one that hears my words and does them, not just hears them. It's about the full sense of faith for you and me, for God to love the world. And the story of these verses begins in a very simple way. It's a conversation between a man named Nicodemus and God named Jesus. Now, Jesus had been around for a while at this point, had already worked many miracles, done many amazing things, and, and Nicodemus knows about it. 
He had already become an enemy, or at least they felt that, of the religious leaders called the Sanhedrin, which were made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. Very religious, very legalistic people, that's who they were. Nicodemus was one of them. He was what's called a Pharisee. He lived by the law. He kept the law. He kept the Sabbath. He followed the religious rituals of his day. He did all kinds. His life was ordered and shaped by the law every second that he, that he lived. But he comes to Jesus in the night. Why does he do that? He's already very religious. He already keeps the law. He's already reached the height of his own people, but being the Pharisee, he's at the top of the list. He's the achiever of religious achievers at that point. But he comes to Jesus anyway. And he says this to Jesus. He says, and I'm paraphrasing. He said, no one could do what you do unless God had sent him. No one could work the miracles you worked unless God is the one that sent, that, sent, sent you to us to do those. So he recognized that Jesus had worked amazing miracles. Now, now, back in those days, and still today, Israel was a very small, is a very small nation. People know each other. They're around each other all the time. There were very few roads to travel on. People knew Lazarus. They knew Bartimaeus who was blind and was healed. They, they knew the deaf uh, person who begged by the side of the road for years and years, the crippled person who had been there for a decade. They knew these men and women. They knew who they were. And when they were miraculously healed, uh, they would see them and know them. The story would just take over these tens of thousands of people in that area. Uh, the story. You, have you heard about Bartimaeus? He was blind. Now he sees. Have you heard about this crippled man? He'd been there for 25 years, and now he's walking. This person who couldn't, who couldn't hear, and now he's hearing. And, and he walked in the water, and he calmed the storm, and he, he fed 5,000. They're all telling this story about how a few loaves and fishes fed 5,000 of them, and, and I know five of those people. They're my relatives. It's a small place. And they never question his miracles. No one does in the Bible, in the New Testament, anywhere. They question the miracles of Jesus. They do today, but not then. No one did. Uh, they questioned Jesus. They questioned his motivation. They were threatened by him. They wanted him dead, some of them, and they finally achieved that in the cross. Uh, but they never questioned the miracles. And so we have this picture here of this conversation. No one can do the miracles you do unless God has sent you. And so he's coming and asking some questions. He's saying, are you really who they say they are? They're in the night. They won't be seen by his buddies who might judge him for talking to Jesus, this Galilean, this Nazarene, this person who preaches this new gospel we don't like. Are you really who they say you are? You know, in a way, I think that might be what we, why we come to church. You know, we, we come and we hear the hymns. You may recognize some, you may not have. And we hear the song and we read the, hear the verse, which we've seen in Tebow's eyes maybe, and the guy with the sign. Maybe you have it memorized, I don't know. And we say the same thing. I, I wonder if he's who he says he is. Is he really? Is he really God? Can he really save me? Then he's asking uh, Jesus, and if you are who you say you are, what do you expect of me? Because I know I'm not meeting your expectation. I'm keeping the law. I'm religious. I follow all the rituals, but I know I'm still broken. I know I'm still lost. I know I'm still not enough. I know all that I've done is still not enough. I know that. He's saying the 
part of my own condition of my own mortality and my own brokenness and my own sin I'm already so aware of. And in that context, will you, are you willing, can you, might you save me? Because I know I need it. And so what does Jesus say? He says, the words you may have heard, you must be born again. You've got to be born again. Now, Nicodemus evidently is a literalist because when he hears that terminology, you must be born again, his response is, I've got to go find my mother and do it all over again? You know, is, is going through his head what might be involved in that. It sounds kind of difficult to me. And he might be responding tongue-in-cheek way saying, you know, do I have to go back and get my mother's womb again? And do it? You know, no, Jesus, that's not what he's saying. You must be born of the Holy Spirit. Something new must happen in you that you might walk with me. And here are the words in John 3.16 that follow the conversation about you must be born again. For God so loved the world. That's where we start. Now, one of the things we, we may not realize is how foreign that was to the religious people in Jesus' time. Of any religious person, whether it was a pagan who worshipped the Roman gods or the Greek gods, or whether it was those who worshipped the Jewish god, the idea of God loving the world was as foreign a concept as they could have. They had no thought of a God like that. They loved us. He said, for God so loved the world. And then he adds this, that he gave his one and only son. Now, I want to keep that verse up there for a while if we can. We have a lot of reasons we, we, we think or hope that God loves us. or things we look for that, that we want to have God prove his love toward us. We say, well... You know, if you do this, God, I know you love me. If you, if, you don't, if you let that happen, I know you don't love me. And we have all kinds of things we look for from God to do. And, and we're constantly wanting God to, to encourage and enforce and prove his love toward us by having things happen the way that we want. And so we have a list of things we expect. If this happens, God loves me. This, this happened, he must not today. Or I was, I was a good person that was really good today, so I know God loves me. I wasn't so good. God may not love me today, you know. And, one of the things about Pastor Caesar I love is when he gets up here, he always talks about God's love and amazing grace every time, you know, because that's where we stand. But God's saying, listen to me, I'm going to prove my love for you. And that is, I'm going to give you my son. And the gift of my son is that proof we must never forget, underestimate the value of it. My love for you, whatever situation you are in, Whatever experience you have, whatever hardship you are going through, my love for you is proven and that I'm giving you my son. So Jesus is saying, the proof that God loves you is standing in front of you right now. This, I am the proof that God loves you, that I know who you are, you're a Pharisee. You know what I've done, I've worked miracles. You should already believe in me. But I'm having a conversation with you and I'm going to tell you, just believe in me. Just, that's all you've got to do, Nicodemus. That's all you've got to do. That whoever believes in him should not perish. But find that everlasting life, which is the next verse. I've talked about that life a little bit already because I don't want you to get that wrong. Everlasting life begins the minute we begin to follow and accept Jesus Christ. That's something we wait for. We have it now. And that life, first, is how I live the life Follow the example and teaching of Jesus. And then one day that life will be eternal in the heavens, but it's that now because that's simply a journey I will have. And we have peace and assurance in God giving us that in the words he offers today. Because verse 17, which is part of verse 16, really should not be two verses. It's really, it's really only one. For God 
did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's why he is here. Two and a half years ago, or almost two and a half years ago, and some might know the story, I had a heart attack and went to the hospital here. I didn't know I was having a heart attack. I walked in feeling okay, just had a couple funny feelings, so I went on in there and, and just made a, you said the word heart uh, at the desk, which is all you got to do. And then you enter this heart world hospitals have today. And so nurses start flying at you and doctors start coming and other people come running in there and they're they're every direction all around you, uh, giving you this, taking that, sticking this in there, you know, and uh, offering this advice and asking you questions. And that goes on for a lengthy amount of time uh, until you eventually, in my case, make your way to the cardio, to the cath lab and do it all over again with them. Uh, before they finally put the stand in, which was my story. But, but what I'm trying to say is I'm, I'm hoping that these people know what they're doing. I'm hoping that they know exactly why they're in my room, why they're standing there, and why they have a needle, or why they have a pill, or why they have a clipboard, or why they say take your clothes off. I hope they know exactly what they're doing and why they're doing it, what their intent and their purpose is. And evidently they did, or I'm here, or I wouldn't be here preaching to you today. Well, the Bible's clear on exactly the intent and purpose of God in sending Jesus to you and me. He is sent into the world to save us. He's not come to condemn us. He's come to give us life. He's not come to to judge us. Do you wonder what God is doing in the world? Do you ever wonder that? What is God doing in this world? This ISIS thing, our taxes, or my health concern that I have, or my financial need, or why I was hurt by someone, or whatever it might be for you and me. We all had that journey. Nicodemus did. All of us do. What is God doing in the world? He's looking for people he can save. We will trust him to do that. And here's exactly what he's telling, I believe, telling Nicodemus when he says, you've got to be born again. Saying you must, Nicodemus, you Pharisee, you person, you think you're so religious, you must be reinvented with a new set of beliefs. That's the first part of being born again. You must be reinvented with a brand new set of beliefs. And I will teach you those if you'll listen to me. I'll teach you what they are. I'll teach you about loving your God, loving your neighbor, being merciful, giving, sharing, offering, sacrificing in all the ways that he taught and lived himself for others. He says, you must be born again means you must follow me instead of legalism and law. I could care less about how religious you are, I think he's saying, but I want you to follow me. We will walk together in life. We will share life as the Son of God with the one that I've saved, the one who I'm working in, the one I'm granting salvation, and the one I'm teaching how to live life in a way that's rewarding, meaningful, full, and successful as God gives that to us. You must trust me to save you and recognize you cannot save yourself. All your efforts, Nicodemus, have been for naught. You may be the most religious law-keeping man in the entire world, and he probably was near the top handful of those who kept the Jewish law. But still, you can't save yourself. I must do it. You must let me save you. You cannot save yourself. 
You must give up who you are to become who I will make you to be. You must do that. You must let me reshape and remold you to someone new. And finally, you must recognize that that silly bicycle story that I told. You must recognize you're in a perilous condition and you need what I have to offer. All those things here in the dark that night in a moment. No one could do the things you do, Jesus, unless God has sent him. Now what do I do? Because I believe that, because I've seen the miracles you work. You wonder what God's doing in the world? This is it. He's trying to save you. He's trying to save you. He's acting out his life in the work of his son, Jesus Christ, so we can see God and the beauty of who he really is. He's offering eternal life to those who believe. And that belief is more than just saying, I have mental asset of something being true. It's now being committed to the person we say, I believe in you. And he's not here to condemn, but to save. It's the will and purpose of God. Peter said, God's not willing that any should perish, but all should inherit everlasting life. And one of the things that makes us most human, I believe, is we have the ability to choose. And that night, Nicodemus could choose. He could choose. He could choose. We think about the evidence. No one could do what you have done unless God had sent him. And Nicodemus, who wanted every, he wanted not to believe, had to believe and the evidence. And not only that evidence, but throughout history, the millions and millions and millions of people who have believed in Christ, whose hearts and lives have been changed. You may know someone who had that change of heart and life because they believed in Jesus. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a friend, a coworker. Maybe it's a parent or a child or brother or sister. Maybe it's someone uh, in your neighborhood. Again, though, maybe it's you. But if not, it can be. Because this is what changes the human heart and life. The evidence that he has been sent by God into the world. What God is doing in Christ in the world, in your life, and my life. What it is to be born again and to experience that new life God offers us and the beauty of John 3.16 and 3.17. Now let's go back to the original conversation. It's a nighttime and Nicodemus finds his way to Jesus who's there walking alone. And he says, you know, no one could do what you've done unless God sent you. Then he says, I believe that Jesus, now what do I do? He said, well, you've got to be born again. How? How do I be born again? Be born again in the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words you give us today, and you know us so well. And we've come to church like Nicodemus found you there on that road in Jerusalem. We've come looking for you, Lord. We've come because we believe there's something special about you, Lord who you are, the things you taught, what you did, what you're still doing. We also recognize, God, our own mortality, our own sinful nature, our our own need, our own brokenness, Lord, and we know we're not enough. And so, God, we come to church because we want to come to you. We've come, Lord, and singing some hymns and hearing hearing an anthem and praying some prayers, but now we come directly, God, to you. And we hear your word that we must be born again. Lord, we believe in you. May you grant us new life. May you forgive us of our sins and save our souls. And Lord, may you teach us. We will learn to follow your teaching 
and live the life you teach us to live. And in that life, experience a joy and abundance you want all your people to receive. So we pray in Jesus' name, amen.